0: Well, good morning. This morning we're talking about Paul and Corinth, Acts chapter 18, verses one through 22. The transitional book of Acts is about the kingdom of God. This is divine revelation progressively revealed and illuminated by the Holy Spirit and lived out through the work of, the, of Jesus's apostles. The key to understanding the kingdom of God is the truth that Jesus is both Lord and Christ. This was the seminal idea in Acts two, verse 36, when Peter gives the first explanation for the events that surrounded the day of Pentecost. After the clarification of the word of God at the first council of the New Testament Ecclesia, the apostle Paul began his second apostolic journey, sharing the conclusion of the the council. Jesus was building his New Testament Ecclesia, and the way people became part of it was based on the good news that Jesus is Lord and Christ. During the second journey, Paul returned to some of the places he visited on his first journey, such as Derby and Lystra. His purpose was not to evangelize as he had done before, but to strengthen and encourage the disciples of Jesus. He clearly had a concept of once you had disciples in a place, the disciples then would do the evangelization by virtue of living as light to the world. Then he went on to pioneer new Christian communities in Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Athens, Corinth, and arguably Ephesus. When arriving at a city, Paul's practice was to go to the local synagogue to share the revelation about Jesus to those who sought to be regulated by Scripture. A synagogue was a place where Scripture was honored, where it was it was exalted, and where it was re- it, it was viewed as being the Word of God. So they they viewed it as authority, authoritative, and therefore they were biblically literate people. So many of the people that Paul went to were biblically literate which means as you go through the book of Acts, you have to recognize who he's talking to. Are they biblically literate or biblically illiterate? And mostly what we've seen in the first 18 chapters is biblically literate situations. We've seen just a couple of situations where he's talked to biblically illiterate people, like at Lystra and then in Athens. Now today, we don't have hardly any biblically literate people generally that we talk to in local churches. Generally, most local church participants are fairly biblically illiterate. So we need to be paying attention to that. We all we have some different strategies from Paul at times because our circumstances are somewhat different. So Paul consistently encountered opposition from the Jewish religious leaders who were jealous that he was persuading many of the synagogue participants that Jesus was Lord and Christ as prophesied in Old Testament scripture. Consequently, he was persecuted by the Jewish religious leaders just like you're likely to be persecuted by the church leaders because they don't understand the truth that you're trying to proclaim. They have their version of the gospel, which many times is a very weak version, and sometimes it's an incorrect version, and you're trying to give them a more robust biblical version. So you're going to get resistance. And to Paul, this happened in Pisidian Antioch. It happened in Iconium, and then in Lystra, and Thessalonica, and then in Berea. All these places, he had opposition. He was run out of town, and sometimes he was stoned and physically threatened. In Corinth, Paul experienced the same reaction from the Jewish religious leaders. Nevertheless, the Lord continued to produce fruit through Paul, and and the Lord protected Paul in Corinth. So in addition to the success he had with biblically literate people, he also had success with biblically illiterate people. In Philippi, there was no synagogue, and the biblical literacy was low. Nevertheless, he found favor. He found some who were who were regulated by the Word of God and began to form a Christian community around them. In Athens there was a synagogue, a venue where Paul to share the truth that Jesus was Lord in Christ, according to Scripture. But he was also invited to the speak to the intellectually elite who were biblically illiterate. It's in that setting that Paul illustrated how to communicate the truth about Jesus from general revelation. This is a skill that we all need to learn if we're ever going to be effective with the illiterate people that we largely run into today. After his visit to Athens, Paul traveled about 50 miles to the to the west, and he came to Corinth. Corinth was a city of commerce. It was a very decadent city, uh, but he had favor there. Unlike Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, he was not driven out by jealous religious leaders. Instead, he was protected. Even though he was threatened, he was still protected and was able to stay there a long time. He may have stayed in Corinth up to, up to two years. It's hard to know exactly how long he was there. He was there at least a year and a half. And he very well could have been longer than that. All right, let me just read the text and then I'm gonna go make some comments about it. So Acts 18 verses one through 22 this i've titled this first section verses 1 through 8 the initial success and resistance after this paul left athens and went to corinth and he found a jew named aquila a native of pontus recently come from italy with his wife priscilla because claudius had commanded all the jews to leave rome claudius was the r- ruler of the roman empire at the time and he went to see them that is he went paul went to see uh Priscilla and Aquilus because he was of the same trade and he worked with them and he stayed with them. They were all tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. While Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, remember they stayed in Berea while while Paul went to Athens. Berea was in Macedonia. So they finally arrived, they caught up with Paul, they catch up with him, not in Athens, but in Corinth. So Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, that is the Jewish people, that is largely the leaders, opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I'm going to go to the Gentiles. And he left there. He went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God, his house was a, was next door to the synagogue, very interestingly. And Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing God, believed and were baptized. Then you have a very interesting scenario. God's gonna give a promise to Paul, and that promise will be tested. This is Acts 18, 9 through 17. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months. This is how we know he was there at least 18 months, teaching the word of God among them. But 18 months later, when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, Gallio was the new governor of this province of Achaia. The Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if we're a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names in your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. They, and they all see Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, apparently the new ruler, because the, the previous ruler had become a Christian, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. Finally, Paul is going to conclude his missionary journey uh, by going to from Antioch to Ephesus and then on back home. So verses 18 through 22 record that that portion of the trip. After this, Paul spent many days longer, we don't know how many days, and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and took with him Priscilla and Aquila. At centre he had his hair cut, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there, that is Priscilla and Aquila. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. And when he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church, apparently the church in Jerusalem. Now that would have been about a 65-mile walk from Caesarea. And then he went down to Antioch. Well, that was about a 300-mile walk from Jerusalem to Antioch. But that concluded his second apostolic mission here. So let's uh, take a look at this in more detail. Verses one through eight, his initial success and resistance. So after this, now this is referring back to his time in Athens where he had some people that were persuaded by his argument to the intellectually elite, his argument based on general revelation. And he, he drove that to a day of judgment, which everyone knows instinctively that there is a day of judgment. They don't need special revelation to tell them that. They know that from general revelation. So he appeals to that, he points that Jesus is gonna be the judge and God's righteous standards will be the standards. So that split people and some believed and some didn't. So that was his experience in Athens. So after that, he goes to Corinth. He was not run out of Athens. He was not forced to leave, he left on his own terms. And when he gets to Corinth, it says, and he found a Jew named Aquila. Now that word found there is the Greek word that we, we get an English word from it. We get the English word heuristic. Heuristic means something that's discovered by trial and error. So he was probably walking around, wandering around, and stumbled upon these tent makers. A Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus. Pontus was on, is northern Turkey recently come from Italy with his wife, Priscilla, because Claudius, who ruled from 41 to 54 AD, had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. So Priscilla and Aquila were apparently, they may have been run out of Pontus, we don't know, but they were definitely run out of Rome. So they were Jewish uh, vagabonds, you might say, trying to find a, find a place. So Paul stumbles on them. Of course, we know there's no such thing as stumbling on things. The, the Holy Spirit led them, to this relationship. And so he meets them and he decides, okay, uh, I'll think I'll stick around. And verse the verse goes on to say, and he went on to say, and because he was of the same trade, that word trade there comes from the word technos, we get technology from that. So it's a word that is, has a prefix on it, homo, which means the same, same technos, He stayed with them. He abided with them and worked with them. So they all worked the trade of tent making together. They were apparently engaged in commerce there in Corinth. For they were all tent makers. The tents that they made were largely small dwellings for travelers. So they were probably made out of leather, maybe out of goat skins or things like that. But Paul and Priscilla and Aquila were were skilled at this. And that's what they did together. And that's how they... They occupied their time. Were told to occupy till he returned. So they were occupying their time and earning a living that way. Also, every Sabbath, every Saturday, verse four, Paul reasoned in the synagogue and he tried to persuade Jews and Greeks that Jesus was Lord in Christ. Now, it's interesting. This is interesting on a couple of points. One is the reasoning, the the tense of the word he reasoned. It's the imperfect tense. Imperfect implies past action that started, but it's not been completed. So this was an ongoing thing. He was going every Saturday, going and reasoning with it. We don't know how long this went on, but it could have gone on for months. Every Saturday, going to the synagogue, And of course, we saw from the pattern in Acts 13 that Paul probably didn't go and assert himself. He probably went and was very quiet and participated in synagogue like anyone else, listened, and was invited then to say something. And once they invited him once, they probably invited him again and again and again because they saw he had something to say to them that they needed to hear. So this went on on the Sabbath. So he got... Six days he's working, and the Sabbath day he's at the synagogue trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When uh, I've done a lot of apologetics teaching, and one of the things that many apologetics teachers contend is that when we're conducting apologetics that the objective is not to persuade, it's to present truth. Well, when you see this, the Apostle Paul, I guess, didn't read those apologetics teachers because he was trying to persuade And again, the verb here is the imperfect tense, meaning it's had a starting point and it continued to go on and it was unabated. It was an ongoing, uncompleted effort to persuade Jews and Greeks, anyone that would be willing to hear the word of God, the scripture, interpreted in light of the fact that Jesus is Lord in Christ. That's who he was target was at that point. Now, finally, Silas and Timothy arrived. Verse five. They arrived from Macedonia. They didn't have, participate in Athens. They skipped that part of the journey. So, and Paul was occupied at that point. He shifted. There was a change. He went went almost into a full time, daily process of sharing the word. That is the word of Christ, testifying. And this word, testifying, means solemnly affirming to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. So it's, this is intensified. He started out fairly simple on Saturdays, and now Silas and Timothy are there. Presumably, they may have taken over the tent-making, and Paul then was released to spend more time in sharing the word. And so that's what he did. And what that did is stirred things up. Verse 6, and when they opposed him and reviled him, now this is not everyone, this would be the leaders. It was always the leaders because the leaders were jealous because they were seeing people come to Christ, make a decision for Christ because of Paul's teaching. Paul was out clearly teaching very persuasively, perhaps like Jesus, when it was said of him, he spoke as one who had authority, not like the religious leaders who didn't speak with authority. I suspect Paul was spoke with a lot of authority because he spoke truth. And he was illuminated that illuminated truth, and he was empowered by the Holy Spirit to speak that truth. So when that happened, he finally had his end of that, and he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. Now that's a that's a pretty stern statement, and we, we might view that as very, very insensitive, but there's actually precedence for it. It seems to be a warning. It's a warning to those whom God has granted some grace. You have grace to know truth, and you refuse to walk in that grace, you refuse to receive that truth, then you're being warned. Your blood will be on your own head. There were a couple examples in the Old Testament of that. For example, in 2 Samuel 1, 16, Amalekite was, uh, who was the last instrument of the death of King Saul. when he came and reported this to King David, thinking David would be happy that King Saul was dead and David could take over now as king of Israel like he was supposed to. He thought he would be happy. And David was not happy because this man had been the instrument, the final instrument used to kill Saul. And so he told him, your blood is on your own hand because your own mouth testified against you, saying, I killed the Lord's anointed. So that's a context where the idea your blood be on your own head was used and there was another one in first kings 2 verses 36 and 37 as well so a couple of incidences where you see this so paul had biblical authority to use this phrase and he, he used it in the same sense that you find it in old testament scripture your blood be on your own heads you've been warned you know the truth you received you refused to receive the truth now i'm going to sh- shake off the the dust I'm going to shake my my feet off. I'm going to shake my garments. And your blood's on your old head. I'm going to go to the ethnos, the Gentiles. And verse 7, he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius, justice. Titius means nurse. That's an interesting word. And justice means just. He was a worshiper like, uh, like Lydia, the woman of Thyatira in Acts 16, was a worshiper of God his house happened to be next door to the synagogue. So it wasn't a long trip, just went out of one building next door to the next building. And apparently there he was able to continue sharing and teaching the word of God to those who would come. So Christmas verse eight, the ruler of the synagogue believed in the Lord. First, it kind of reminds you of Acts 16 where you had the, the jailer who believed in the Lord and together with his all entire household. This is what happened with Christmas. Once the father came to the Lord, the whole home came to the Lord. That's the way it is today in certain Asian countries like Japan. When the father does something, everybody does something. It's not that way in America today, largely. There are many parts of the world because we're so humanistic. Uh, humanism teaches us or tells us we're, we're, autonom- we're autonomous so we can do what we wanna do when we wanna do it, how we wanna do it. So that's how we're misled. So back then they were very clear. They had, they had authority, they knew who was in charge and whatever he did, everybody else did as well. We, we would do well to pay attention to that and ask the Lord, okay, how do we bring that into how we live today? So he came to the Lord together with his household and many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. You notice that you have an active and a passive word here. The active word is they believed. There's something in them that gave them the grace to believe that's the Holy Spirit. So they responded to that in faith, but then they submitted to being baptized. No one can self-baptize. Someone has to baptize you, and if that person is is metaphysically aware, they're looking at you and asking, are you really know the Lord? If you don't know the Lord, I'm not going to baptize you. If you do, I will, but I want to see real evidence, fruit in the life. That's how we should be baptizing. Today, we largely baptize based on a profession of faith. Somebody claims that they've come to Christ, we'll baptize them probably not a good practice that's one of those things that the christian community needs to revisit and really seriously consider more biblical standards on that all right so let me go on to the next section this is this is where god gives a promise to paul and then he tests him you know that's the way god works uh god will give you a promise from revelation whether it's special revelation general revelation or specific revelation he'll give you a promise Special revelation is word, general revelation is creation, and specific revelation is specific communication to you, because we have a personal God who does communicate. So verse 9, he says, and the Lord said to Paul, one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in the city who are my people. So that's a very interesting short verse there. Two verses. Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. Okay, so if you're in Paul's shoes and you're seeing a lot of resistance, everywhere you go, there's resistance. You never know when there's going to be a riot or somebody's going to bring you up on charges. Something serious is going to happen. And the Lord communicates to him some way in a night vision, a dream or something, A trance, we don't know the details, do not be afraid. But go on speaking, obviously speaking the truth about Jesus as Lord and Christ and connecting him to the Old Testament. And do not be silent, for I will be with you. Now, it's important to recognize when you hear, I am with you, uh, that doesn't necessarily mean things are gonna be cushy and easy. It means God's with you and he will be true to his word and he'll give you grace for whatever he will put you through. So you need to recognize that. And the other reason he says that you're not, not to be afraid is, no, is that uh, no one will attack to harm you for I have many in this city. In other words, I've got my people here. So many times as, as a teacher of the word, you're gonna find that you're gonna talk to a lot of people and there's not gonna be much. I was talking to uh, one of the Christian leaders in our community at lunch here about two weeks ago, and he told me about his daughter had gone to speak at a church. His daughter is a very able, capable lady, and it was a church that um, when she got through, there was just no response. Uh, So her her father asked her, you know, what would you think? She said they were just dead. There was no response at all. And when you get that, you don't have a clue what's going on. Well, there's some paradigms of Christianity that are not responsive. They, they think that is unholy. That is, that is inappropriate. I grew up in a Baptist paradigm. You did not say much of anything. You just listened. You might be able to say an amen every once in a while. And that was it. In the charismatic stream, you've got people that are yelling out, screaming, and participating with the, with the preacher. It's a totally different environment. Well, which one's right? Well, we don't know. You might say, well, the ones that's responsive, they're clearly coming to Christ, right? Not necessarily. You can be very responsive in a meeting and be dead, or you can be non-responsive and be alive, so you don't know really what's going on. So you have to, as a teacher of the word, you have to trust that God's working, if you are where you're supposed to be doing what you're supposed to be doing, God is working. He will work through you, even if you can't see it or understand it or really recognize it, he's working. And I know when I early on, when I first started teaching 40 years ago, I remember after teaching a lesson, I would I would finish and I would I would walk off the the stage of the platform and somebody might come up to me and, and say something to me and say, Well, you know, how do you how do you think it went? And, uh, generally I would, I would, I would look at them and I wouldn't know what to say, but invariably when I felt like it went well, I would get people coming to me saying, well, I didn't really understand this, or I didn't understand that. And I'd realize, well, wait a minute, I thought it was clear, but they didn't. And then other times I'd feel like I just fumbled away along and I had done a poor job, people would come up and say how great it was. So then it came to me, Hey. I'm not the judge and jury of this. I can't figure this out. I just need to be faithful to deliver the message as clearly, as compellingly, as accurately as I can, and trust that the Holy Spirit has got many people in this place. That gives me hope. That keeps me going. Hopefully that'll help you in whatever you're assigned to deliver the word of God. It'll keep you going when you don't understand the response you're getting. Going on in verse 11 here. Now we have the test. It's interesting. there's eighteen months now are going to be go by and between the time that Paul gets the promise and the Paul, Paul is tested. So here we are, eighteen months later, and he stayed teaching the word of God among them. That's what he did over and over again, probably every day. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews picked that time and made a united attack, and they set against Paul. That's what the word attack means. They set against Paul. They didn't physically touch him, but they brought him up on charges to the tribunal. This is where the the word bema, you may have heard that word, the judgment seat, and this is the charge. This man is persuading, which he was. He was persuading people, to worship God. He was doing that. They said contrary to their law. But before Paul could say anything, this is so interesting. Paul Paul is ready to defend himself. Galileo said, oh, no, not even going to listen to this. This is all about your law. It's not about the Roman law. He wouldn't even listen to it. He dismissed the case immediately. And of course, the Jews are incensed. They thought they had a chance to get Paul. And they were going to attack him. But see, Paul had been promised. Uh, no one will attack you in the sense of laying a hand on you. They attacked him in the sense of bringing him up on charges, but they didn't lay a hand on him. So that's the distinction. Many times you've got to look very carefully what God promises you because you'll develop pictures as to what that promise may look like. And then things will happen and it won't be quite like your picture was. But God will be true to his word. God is always true to his word. And so he was true here to paul he protected him so let's go ahead to the last section here verses 18 through 22 and after this uh, paul stayed many days longer in other words after this whole episode of the of people trying to bring him up on charges and Gallio refusing to hear it and there's a shenanigan a stunt pulled off where they they actually uh, mistreated the synagogue leader, thinking that would be uh, would get the the, the judge's attention, and he, he'd just ignore that too. So after all the shenanigans were done, Paul stayed there many days longer. Now, how many days was that? We don't know. He's already been there at least 18, 18 months. So he's there. Who knows? Maybe another four, five, six months, and then took leave. The idea of taking leave, is it's, it's I need to I need to disconnect from you. It's time for me to go. He set sail from Syria, and he took Priscilla and Aquila with him. Now, apparently, uh, Silas and Timothy were with him too, but it doesn't mention that. At Centuria, he had had to cut his hair where he was under a vow, and I haven't found anybody that's got great sense of what that vow may have been. So it's hard to know at this point. And they came to Ephesus. That's just across the strait. So from, from Centuria, to Ephesus was 250 miles by sea. Now at the normal rate that they traveled by sea, which was something like you know, two to three miles an hour, probably was a three day sea trip across there to get to Ephesus. So when they, uh, they get to Ephesus, um, Paul left Priscilla and Aquila there, while, while, and while there he went to the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. Now here he had favor. Now, I don't know if the Jewish leaders hadn't caught on to the fact that uh, this is the guy that was stirring up all their brothers in other places, but they continued to have him come back. In fact, they invited him to stay longer, but he declined. So then he took leave of them and he returned. He said, I will return if God wills. And he did return on his next missionary journey. We'll see that in Acts 19. And he set sail from Ephesus. He landed at Caesarea. So Ephesus says uh, Caesarea is about 650 miles, probably a week of traveling by the, by sea, and then it's 65 miles by foot, about four days by foot from Caesarea to Jerusalem, and that's apparently where he went, although it doesn't specifically say he went to Jerusalem. The implication is it says that he went up and greeted the church that suggests since Jerusalem was higher in elevation than Caesarea, which was at sea level, that suggests he went up. and then he went down from there to Antioch, which was the end closer to sea level. That journey was probably twenty days. So you can see, Paul probably spent something like two to three years on this second journey uh, and largely spent a, a lot of the time, a lot of a lot of that time in Corinth, and that prompted, the letters to the Corinthians and first and second Corinthians that are part of our new Testament today. All right. So let me just give you a, a, a point of theology and an application here. Uh, the theological point is I want to stress how discipline comes through testing. And the writer, the epistle of Hebrews stated that the discipline, the discipline was a mark of a true son of God. If you're a true son, you will be disciplined. Discipline means testing. For example, when Jesus was baptized and declared to be the Son of God, who pleased the Father, the Holy Spirit came on him in the form of a dove as confirmation, and then he was soon tested. In some of the uh, the texts that deal with that particular incident or record that incident, it says that the Spirit drove him into the desert. This is the Spirit that came out of heaven to confirm that he was the son of God with whom the father was well pleased and now he's driven to be tested. Well, this is the way God works. God tests us not to discover anything himself so that we can discover what's really in us. In Acts 19, the apostle Paul was given specific revelation that applied to him in those circumstances. He was given, told by the, by the Lord directly that no one would attack him bodily. I was at that was verses 9 and 10 of chapter 18. But 18 months later, he's attacked by, by Jews, and they were brought before Gallio, who was proconsul of Achaia, and they were trying to attack him, trying to do harm, trying to get the civil authorities to do harm, and had no success. This shows you that God was true to his word. Paul was brought before a civil court, and a charge of insurrection was made before him. But before he could respond, Gallio dismissed the charges based on a lack of understanding, a lack of standing rather. Gallio did not regard the charge to be an issue of Roman law, but an issue of Jewish law. So in what sense was the word of God fulfilled? Well, it was in the sense that, that no one really touched him. He was brought upon civil charges, he was charged as a lawbreaker, but there was no trial, nobody touched him, and he did not even have to defend himself. So even the spectacle of beating Sosthenes, who was the replacement of Crispus as the synagogue leader, even that did not stir up Galileo. Galileo was not dissuaded. He was totally persuaded that this was not a Roman affair and he would not get involved. So God protected Paul through the civil authorities. He used civil authorities to protect him. Interesting how God works, we don't think of civil authorities as being our protectors but they were in this case paul experienced, it was similar to joseph the 11th son of jacob he was given a prophetic dream that he would rule over his family but before the prophecy could be fulfilled he was sold into slavery and later imprisoned during this time the psalmist spoke of, about how joseph wrestled with the word so this is what it said in psalm 105 verses 9 verse 19 specifically The word of the Lord tested him. It tested Joseph. Surely the word of the Lord tested Paul and Corinth, but God is always true to his word. And this means and methods can be, but God's means and methods can be creative and many times surprising. So my application here is the word of God tested. Christianity is based on a self-revealing personal God who's the creator of all truth and reality. God extends divine revelation to mankind in three forms special, general, and specific revelation. Special revelation is revelation of God in creation and scripture. Scripture says of itself, All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man or woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. General revelation is the revelation of God in creation. This revelation is congruent with special revelation, meaning there will not be any inconsistencies between special and general revelation when they're both properly understood. Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the expanse proclaims the work of his hands. Then you have specific revelation. This is the revelation of God given to a specific person in a specific situation at a specific time with special and general revelation are, are canonical, they are canonical. Specific revelation is, is canonical only for the person who is, is given to. So let me say that again, while special and general revelation are canonical for all, specific revelation is canonical only for the one that's given to. So it's very special. It's, it's, it's not part of specific revelation or general revelation. In Acts 18, the apostle Paul was given specific revelation. And through a, a night vision, probably a dream, Acts 18, verse 9, 9 and 10 say, and the Lord spoke to uh, Paul in a vision, don't be afraid, but keep on speaking and don't be silent for I am with you and no one will lay a hand on you to hurt you because I have many people in the city commonly when revelation is given to a person the person is tested the test is believed is to believe god when circumstances seem contrary to the revelation i cited the example of joseph previously previously, uh, through a prophetic vision yet that he wrestled with the truth he couldn't he looked at the dream that god gave him he looked at his circumstances first as a slave and then as a prisoner and seemingly no way out of prison How does God fulfill his word when I am stuck in a prison? And that tested him. That tried him. But God was true to his word. God had a way to deliver Joseph and fulfill his word. So also Paul was given a prophetic dream. And 18 months later, that dream was tested. The dream was said, do not be afraid, but keep on speaking and don't be silent, for I am with you and no one will lay a hand on you to hurt you. But 18 months later, there was a charge, a charge of insurrection brought up against Paul. And so what was what's God doing here? Is it God, God going to be true to his word or not? And yes, God will be true to his word. It just may happen differently than you think, and it may be more, more creative than you could imagine. So you have Galileo was of Micaiah. The Jews made their united attack against Paul and brought him to the tribunal this man they said is persuading people to worship god contrary to the law the next verse indicated that paul was prepared to defend himself against an attack that he had, but that he had been told by the lord would not happen in other words he was i'm sure he was thinking on some level wait a minute the vision said this wouldn't happen but it's happening and now paul before paul can say anything gallio speaks and gallio says to the jews you don't have standing here this is not a matter of roman law deal with it yourself he dismissed the case god was true to his word god used gallio to make sure that he would be true to his word paul was not touched though he was charged as a lawbreaker he was charged with violating a civil law but in the providence of god the charges were dismissed god was true he always is true to all of us and we we will be tested to see whether or not we really believe that truth. This illustrates the importance of trusting God to be true to his word, even when circumstances suggest otherwise. Scripture does not reveal any of Paul's emotions or thoughts about this situation. We don't know if he was fearful, he was told not to be fearful, and we don't know if he backslid and became fearful or shocked or doubted God. But what is recorded is that God was true to his word, given through the specific revelation to Paul in that circumstance. Faith is always believing that God will be true to his word no matter what the circumstances may be. And when God tests our faith, we must know that it is intended to make us stronger in Christ. So may we have the grace to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ through the tests and through the really always believing the truth that God will be true to his word, whether it's specific revelation, special revelation, or general revelation, God will be true to his word. In Jesus' name, amen.